and Happy New Year. It's great to be with all of you again. I want to echo what Rolana said about the prayer requests. It is just an amazing privilege to receive your thoughts and requests and to hear what's going on in your lives and to pray for you. So we really had a great time doing that yesterday. Thank you for doing that. If you didn't get a chance, like Rolana said, please go ahead and text something in. We'd love to keep praying for you. Well, my wife, Rachel, and I moved to the Bay Area in January of 2000. We had been married a few years, a few weeks prior. We had a place in Sunnyvale. I started a job in product management at Oracle. And we were kind of trying to get used to the new rhythm of married life when we had our first major conflict. My wife wanted a dog. And uh, she had not grown up with a dog. She had always wanted a dog. Now we're living on our own, and she wanted a dog. I did not want a dog. Um, I'd had a dog. I wanted to kind of settle in to new married life. We were at an impasse. So we got a dog. <laughs> and uh, this was the dog that we got. His name was Reese. And he was about as strange as he looks. Uh, he's a little miniature pincher guy, maybe 10 pounds, really bizarre looking creature. And uh, Reese was a rescue puppy. So we adopted him. The first time we saw him, he was huddled in a corner. And we just thought, you know, this young, newly married couple, we had so much love. We could just love this little creature back to health. And uh, we were naive about how that works. So we brought Reese into our home, and he was terrified of us. He eventually warmed up to Rachel, um, but he was very slow to warm up to me. So that uh, he'd be sitting with Rachel on the couch, and I'd come home, and he would gently go off the couch and walk in the other room. And uh, I mean... I've got a pretty fragile ego, and so this was like the biggest thing in my life for a long time. Uh, you know, man's best friend, but my dog didn't like me. And uh, figuring out, how do you handle a dog that can't stand to be around you? And I just kept thinking, how do I convince this strange little creature that I can be trusted, that I'm okay? that I have his best interests in mind, even when he's learned otherwise previously in life. Now, we are picking up this morning in the book of Exodus. We've been in Exodus since about September. We took a little break in Advent. And just to catch us up, we've spent the fall <clears throat> thinking about how God freed his people from slavery in Egypt. That's the first major story in the book of Exodus. We're picking up today with the second major block of Exodus, which is God giving his people the law. They'll be in the wilderness, and that story will climax with the delivery of instructions for life. We'll take a break for Lent, and then after Easter, we're going to come back to the third section of Exodus where God teaches his people to worship. He describes how to build the tabernacle for them and teaches them what it looks like to orient their hearts towards him in worship. So there's three parts of Exodus, freedom, covenant, and worship. And we're picking up this morning with the section where God will eventually give his people the law. Now, um, if you think about a baby, when a baby is born, that baby doesn't know who to trust. That baby doesn't know how the world works. That baby doesn't understand where his or her needs are going to be met. And sometimes, whether you're a baby or a puppy or a nation, early on in life, you learn 
some things about the way the world works that aren't super helpful. Maybe it's trauma, maybe it's neglect, maybe it's just the way you respond to the world, but you figure out how to get your needs met and who can be trusted and how the world works in ways that aren't actually helpful for the rest of life. As we pick up the story today of the nation of Israel, they have just been born. Literally, they have come out of the water of the Red Sea, and they are like newborn babes. And what we're going to see is God teaching them who to trust. See, they've gone through trauma. They've been slaves in Egypt for a very long time. And we read last year how Pharaoh's goal was to crush their spirit. Now, the reality is that a spirit that has been crushed doesn't uncrush immediately. It takes time. It takes relearning. It takes a letting go of the lessons that were learned in the past to replace them with new and healthier lessons. So what we're going to see this morning is God beginning the process of showing his people that he is a new kind of master. They are not living in Pharaoh's land anymore. They are living in the kingdom of God. And we're going to see him doing that by providing for their needs. We're going to actually see God provide for the Israelites three major life needs, water, bread, and rest. And as God provides for those needs, we're going to see that he's not just meeting their needs, he's teaching them where their needs are meant to be met. He's not just giving them water, he's showing them that he is the one who can give them water. He's not just providing for them, he's teaching them that he is the provider. He's helping them to unlearn the lessons from Egypt and relearn what it looks like to trust. Now, at the beginning of a year, as a lot of us are thinking about what last year was like and what this year could be like, this is a critical lesson for us to come to. Because all of us, whether you've walked with Jesus for a long time or you're just here exploring faith or you're somewhere in between, all of us have learned some lessons in life about how to meet our needs that aren't helpful. We have figured out or we have concluded that maybe God can meet these needs but not those needs. And so we have created sections of our life where we are convinced that I need to meet my own needs here. It doesn't work to trust God. And as we begin a new year, we need to unlearn those lessons and let them fall away so that we can see that God is our provider in every area of our life. So as we watch God providing these very basic needs for his people, water, food, rest, we can learn the lesson for ourselves that God is the one who provides for our needs. And my prayer is that there will be some area of each of our lives, wherever we are, whatever part of the journey we're on, where we can recognize, I need to let go of this and trust God to meet my needs. Well, it makes sense for God's people that uh, 
the first lesson he would teach them would be about water. Water is one of our most basic needs as humans. So listen to what happens. This is Exodus 15. I'm going to start in verse 22. Again, God's people have just been freed from Egypt. They've just come through the Red Sea. Moses has sung his song of glory. And now this is where we pick things up. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which is the Hebrew word for bitter. Now, I want you to think about God's people here. They had been newly born from Egypt, come through the Red Sea, two million people, and God sent them into the desert. The desert has no water. Three days is about as long as a human can live without water. So after three days in the wilderness, they still haven't found water. Now, this is a legitimate need. This is not the Israelites wishing for a new iPad or something. This is a necessity for life. They can't find water after three days. And then what happens? They get to a place and what do they find? Water. But they try it and it's bitter. It can't provide them life. Why would God lead them on this emotional roller coaster? The high of coming out of the Red Sea, being delivered in miraculous fashion, they're free from slavery, and then they go into the desert, and hour by hour, day by day, they realize, we need water, or we're going to die. And then they find water and they rejoice. Two million people say, Mara has water, but they try it and it's bitter and they can't drink it. Why would God lead them on this path? I'm not sure, but my guess is that he is teaching them not just to have water, but to trust him for water. He's training them on where their needs are going to be met. And so finally, after three days, after getting to Mara, after finding the water is bitter, this is what happens in the beginning of verse 25. And he cried to the Lord, that is Moses, and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it in the water and the water became sweet. The problem was solved. This sentence in Hebrew is a very stylized Sentence. It's actually three words, followed by three words, followed by three words, followed by two words. So in Hebrew, it reads something like this. He cried, Lord, Lord showed log, threw in water, water sweet. He cried, Lord, Lord showed log, threw in water, water sweet. That's how easy it is for God to solve this problem. Boom, the problem is solved and God has given them water in this miraculous way. Think about a newborn baby again. Baby is born into the world and that baby eventually, pretty quickly, gets thirsty. And if any of your babies were like mine, when the baby gets thirsty, the baby says, excuse me, father, uh, I'm parched. Could you please fetch me a glass of water? 
and I do so, and we have a very adult relationship during their adolescence, right? No, babies don't do that. Baby gets thirsty, and the baby screams and cries as if death is at its door. And I was always grateful as a parent that my babies were small because I was convinced if they were bigger than me, they would rip my limbs off in order to find water and food. The ferocity of their need is expressed because they just don't know. They're just expressing their need. Now, what happens for a baby in the best case is that the parent recognizes the need, provides for it, and that baby learns that their parent can be trusted. Psychologists call this the trust cycle. It's actually something that's studied and recognized. And so it begins with a need where a child has a need and then that need is expressed through arousal and displeasure. That's a nice way of saying screaming bloody murder, right? And then the need is met. The parent steps in, provides for the need. The child experiences relief. And that cycle creates a bond of trust between the child and the parent so that that child learns that their needs are important, that someone out there is listening to them, that someone will meet their needs when they become known. And over time, that child learns that this process happens repeatedly. This is what God is doing for his people. In fact, this is how he makes it explicit. Listen to the end of verse 25 to the end of the chapter. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is God saying, I'm going to explicitly write this down for you, that if you do what I say, if you trust my vision for life, I will meet your needs, and I will consistently demonstrate to you that I am the one who can and will meet your needs. And to cap it all off, he brings them to paradise. 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees. Those would have been date palms. And so sweet fruit. And they would squeeze them into what the uh, Israelites called honey. It was just date sap. This was as good as it gets. Two million people living in paradise. That's God's way of showing them, I will meet your needs abundantly when they come up. Now, the question for us then is, uh, do we believe that? And when have we experienced that? When has God demonstrated to you that he will meet your needs? When and how has God been good to you? Now, maybe you're in a season right now where God is meeting your needs and you have just a ton to be grateful for. And I know some of you are in that kind of a season. Praise God. It's so good to celebrate with you in that. Others of you may be in a season where you're asking God to meet your needs and he isn't. And you're 
grumbling. You are getting close to that three days without water and wondering, God, are you going to show up or not? Maybe some of you are just struggling with needs and you haven't even thought to ask God for them. Or maybe some of you are here exploring faith and you're not even sure this God thing is real. But I want to suggest to you, I'm convinced that for each and every one of us in this room and online and on the patio, that there has been a time in your life where God has met your needs. God has been good to you. You may not feel it right now. You may not have even recognized it as God, but there has been a time where God has stepped in to meet your needs. Because that's what God does. That's how he treats us. Often when we're new believers, God brings us to that place of paradise with the 12 springs and the 70 palm trees and we just experience God in powerful ways. But often it doesn't last forever. That's what we're going to see for the Israelites. God doesn't let them live at Elam. He leads them away. And as he does so, the next need arises. Listen to how it continues. Chapter 16, verses 2 to 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, once again, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. This is where we call them dramatic Israelites. They are... uh, expressing their need once again, that arousal and displeasure. They're saying that they're hungry. And again, this is a legitimate need. They do need food. Two million people in the wilderness need something to eat. But we can see their grumbling has a little more of an edge than it did last time. But remember, they're babies. This is what babies do. They scream and cry until you feed them. So for now, let's be uh, sympathetic to them and forgiving and give them some grace. But as we go through the book of Exodus, let's watch and see if they learn to get any closer to the, uh, excuse me, Father, would you please fetch me a glass of water? If they learn any more polite way of asking for their needs to be met. In this case, they just scream, but here's how God replies. Verses four and five. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Now, we've seen this word test a couple times. Don't be thrown off by that word as if God is... Um, you know, some cruel professor trying to get them to fail. This is just a normal part of the training process. This is what you do when you teach people. You teach them stuff, and then you say, are they learning it or not? And how do I need to restructure how I'm teaching? So God is trying to figure out, are his people learning that they can trust him or not? So he does this incredible miracle. And this miracle of the manna is one of the most famous miracles in the whole Bible. God literally rains bread from heaven. 
He feeds them bread. Later on, we'll see he feeds them quail. He gives them meat and bread every day in the desert for 40 years. This would become the the symbol of how God provides for his people. Throughout the Old Testament, God will be referred to as the one who freed them from Egypt and the one who rained bread from heaven. Listen to Psalm 78, 24. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. All throughout the Old Testament, they look back at God as the one who gave them bread in the desert. See what he's doing? He's not just filling their bellies. He's orienting their souls toward him. He's not just meeting their needs. He's showing them that he is the one who will always meet their needs. So we see this repeated over and over again over the next few verses. Listen to chapter 16. We're going to read 6 to 7 and 10 to 12. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And then picking up in verse 10, And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You see these phrases repeated over and over again. Verse 6, you shall know that it was the Lord. Verse 7, you shall see the glory of the Lord. Verse 10, they saw the glory of God in the cloud. And God says, at night you'll eat meat and in the morning you'll eat bread. Why? Not so that your needs will be met, but that so that you know I am the Lord your God. That's the purpose. He's training them. Forget what you learned about serving Pharaoh. Forget the fact that he crushed your spirits. I'm a different kind of Lord. I'm the kind that meets your needs. And I want you to learn to trust me. Now, this is how God treats his people throughout the course of their lives. He is always teaching us one thing or another. And I don't know whether you've been walking with Jesus a long time or a short time, but there is always something God is doing to take us from here to there. There's always a new lesson. There's always something to let go and something to embrace. There's always something God is doing in our lives to move us forward in our path of walking with Jesus. The question I have for you is, as you think about God providing for the Israelites and you think about your own life, where are you today? What is God teaching you here and now? What do you need to let go of? What do you need to embrace And as I look back on my life and see kind of how I've walked with Jesus throughout years, I've I've seen all sorts of different seasons where God has taught me different things. As an adolescent, I struggled with addiction to pornography, and I saw 
God, patiently teach me to trust him. And then I got married and I had to learn to love another person and deal with my own selfishness and anger and entitlement. And God patiently taught me to trust him. And then we had children and I was going to seminary and I was working a part-time job and life was crazy and our marriage almost fell apart. But God patiently taught me to trust him. And then we had some family challenges that disrupted a lot of things and, and things were chaos for a while. But in the midst of that, God patiently taught me to trust him. And most recently, I've had seasons of depression and anxiety and trying to figure out how to build life rhythms. And in the midst of all of that, God is patiently teaching me to trust him. We go through these different seasons. God teaches us different things at different times. And I want you and I hope for you that as you enter a new year, you see how God is teaching you to trust him in a new way. For the last few years, I've found one of the most meaningful spiritual rhythms has simply been reciting the Lord's Prayer in the morning. It's a powerful prayer, so rich. And one of the phrases that has just been going through my head this whole week is, give us this day our daily bread. Such a powerful request. Give us, it's a communal thing. It's not simply me asking for myself. It's me asking for us. Give us this day. Today, when I go out to gather bread, I only get what I can take for today. It's not for a year from now. It's not the whole plan. It's just what I need to get until I go to bed. And it's that daily bread, my needs being met in Christ. That's my prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. After the first service, my wife pointed out, I think that's Jesus teaching them how to ask nicely. <laughs> That's the equivalent of, excuse me, Father, could I please have a glass of water? Give us this day our daily bread. So we've seen God miraculously provide water for his people. We've seen him miraculously rain down bread from heaven for them. And now we get to the third major need that he meets. And it turns out that this need is one that in some ways encapsulates all the others. God teaches them to rest. Listen to verse uh, 22 to 23 and 26. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. Verse 26, six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. So this is the first passage in the whole Old Testament where we hear about the Sabbath. We've learned earlier in Genesis about the seventh day and how God rested, but this is the first time that God commands his people that you are to take a Sabbath on the seventh day. And he does that by literally forcing them not to be able to work on the seventh day. Because if they, if they go out to gather manna on the seventh day, there won't be any. Their work will be fruitless. 
So God is teaching them forcibly to rest on the last day of the week. Now, this is a bit odd, right? Because if you've had a baby, you know that as soon as you tell them, please take a nap now, they immediately go to sleep, right? No. In fact, this is one of my biggest surprises as a parent that I had to force my children to sleep. And I thought, what's wrong with you? This is sleep. It's the best thing. I'm, I'm giving you a chance to go to sleep. But there's all these tricks. You turn off the lights. You, you swaddle them and wrap them up tight. You do all these things to coerce them to sleep. Even when they're screaming, when you know all you need to do is rest and you'll be fine. But they fight it. And in the same way, that's exactly what God's people did. Listen to verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Because there wasn't anything to be found. God is teaching them, you have to rest. What you need is rest. And they hadn't learned that lesson yet. So when that happens, God, he gets frustrated. Listen to what he says. It's verse 28 to 30. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. It's a gift of rest. Therefore, on the sixth day, he goes over it again. He gives you bread for the two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Finally, they get it. And again, if you've dealt with a baby that needs rest, this is how it works. You fight them, you fight them, they're screaming, they're screaming, and you're holding them, and then they fall asleep. And it's so glorious <laughs> when your children fall asleep. And if you've ever held in your arms a sleeping baby, it's an incredible experience. And to know that this child is trusting you with their life. They're literally sleeping in your arms. And so when God's people rest on the seventh day, I just imagine God as that heavenly parent, delighted that his children are finally resting in him. This would end up being the most distinctive element of the Jewish faith forever, until today. If you go to Israel today, all sorts of things stop on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the thing that identifies people as Jewish. But it's not just, it's not just that people need rest. The Sabbath is a way of acknowledging that God meets the needs of his people. Because when your needs are met, and only then, can you actually rest? And if you want to tell whether somebody really trusts God for their needs to be met, see whether they know how to rest. And if you want to look at your own life and figure out how am I doing trusting God, it's a simple question. Can you rest? Learn to rest in God. Isn't it crazy that this is one of the hardest things for us? 
Isn't rest great? Don't we long for it and yet we fight it like newborn babies? Think about what you need in order to rest. You need to feel safe. You need to have your needs met. If you're hungry or thirsty, you're not going to be able to rest. You need to know that your needs are going to be met in the future in order to rest. You need to be confident that something terrible isn't going to happen to you while you're resting. You need to be confident that something in the world isn't going to happen and you're going to wake up and be a million miles behind everybody else because life is a competition. There's all of these lessons that you need to be confident of in order to turn it off and rest. And so when God gives his people the Sabbath, he does it as a culmination of the lessons he's been teaching them that he is the one who provides for their needs and because of that, stay home on the seventh day. It's just that simple. That's the way they express their trust in God. Believing that when they go back out there on the eighth day, the man is going to be back. I'd love for us to learn this this year. <laughs> learn to rest. Learn to stop to trust God, to, to know that he will be the one who meets all of our needs. Maybe some of you don't know Jesus yet. Maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian. If that's the case, this is the essence of faith. This is what it means to rest in Jesus, to rest in the work that Jesus has done for you. Following Jesus is not something you do on your own. It's not your effort. It is God's gift to you. It is Jesus' work on the cross. It is his resurrection. It is the indwelling of the Spirit in your life. It is something God gives to us, and we receive it as an act of dependence and rest. That's all that faith is, resting in Jesus. Remember that puppy we adopted, the strange-looking creature, Reese? Well, Reese eventually did warm up to me. And that's why I'm not a shell of a man today. Um, he eventually learned that I could be trusted. And uh, maybe not man's best friend, but, but man's close acquaintance. And um, when Reese finally learned to trust me, I treasured his trust. It was so hard fought, and it was such a gift when he finally would play with me and stay in the room <laughs> and... Uh, it was just so fun. I, I think God delights when we're able to trust him, when we're able to rest in him. There's an epilogue to the story from this morning where God tells his people to take some of the manna and put it in a jar and keep that jar forever. That jar uh, would be put in the... Uh, in the Ark of the Covenant that was in the Holy of Holies when the temple would eventually be built hundreds of years later as a way of remembering that God is the one who rained bread from heaven. Now what happens is all throughout the Old Testament, the image of bread continues to be a symbol for God's provision for his people. And then when you get into the New Testament, a baby is born in the city of Bethlehem which translated means house of bread. And that baby would grow up and eventually claim to be the bread of life, given 
so that others could live. And before that man died on the cross, he gave his followers a ritual to practice, a celebration to continue, where we would take little pieces of bread and consume them as a way of remembering his provision for us. So we're going to move into this time of communion right now. And a few instructions. There's going to be ushers that will dismiss you down the middle aisle for those sitting in the main part of the worship center. The folks on the sides can come up to the tables whenever you'd like. And the same goes for the folks sitting on the patio. But as we take this bread and dip it in this cup, we are connected across time to all of those followers of God who have recognized bread as a symbol of God's provision. That, that, that this bread is, I don't know what manna tasted like, but it probably didn't taste much better than this. It's almost as if we're eating manna from 3,500 years prior. And when we do this, we recognize that Jesus gave his body not so that we could live physically, but so that we could continue to live throughout eternity. So this is just like that manna in the jar that God said, do this so that you can remember how I gave you bread in the desert. And this is what Jesus said about this meal. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, the apostle Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is our way of remembering that God has provided for us, that he is the one who will continue to provide, and that because of that, we can rest in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a gift. What a gift to be able to rest. So many of us long for that. Thank you for meeting our needs in the past, in the present. Thank you for being the one who will meet our needs in the future. And thank you for going to such great lengths to remind us over and over again that you are the one who takes care of us. As we celebrate this ceremony that you've given us, may we remember and may you work in our hearts so that we might let go of those ways that we refuse to trust you turn to you to meet our needs, and finally rest. In the name of Jesus, amen.